It's Friday, April 22nd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why did some cultures develop tastes for particularly spicy foods and others didn't? Plus, the Museum of Endangered Sounds and an upcoming documentary from Alex Winter about radicalization on social media. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. I am down in Austin, Texas right now, which means I am currently attempting to eat my weight in barbecue and Mexican food before I go back up north. And Texas doesn't have the spiciest cuisine out there, but it's still way spicier, and therefore, in my opinion, better than a lot of equivalent dishes in New York City. But why is it that certain regions, certain cultures, develop spicier dishes than others? Well, in 1998, biologists at Cornell, Jennifer Billing and Paul Sherman, hypothesized that some cultures developed a love for spices due to certain spices' abilities to kill or inhibit bacteria that causes food to spoil. And where might food be more likely to spoil? In warmer climates. Their study is recounted in an excerpt published to Literary Hub earlier this month from Erez Ueli and Moshe Hoffman's new book, Hidden Games, The Surprising Power of Game Theory to Explain Irrational Human Behavior. And I will also say that some of Billing and Sherman's articles following this study in the 90s had pretty great titles, like the blunt, Why We Use Spices, Spices Taste Good Because They're Good For Us, to the just two biologists having a bit of fun, Antimicrobial Functions of Spices, Why Some Like It Hot. But the contents of those articles behind the titles is pretty good, too. So first, what is a spice? Billing and Sherman wrote in 1999, quote, Spice is a culinary term, not a botanical category. It does not refer to a specific kind of plant or plant part. Indeed, spices come from various woody shrubs and vines, trees, aromatic lichens, and the roots, flowers, seeds, and fruits of herbaceous plants. Cookbooks generally distinguish between seasonings, spices used in food preparation, and condiments, spices added after food is served, but not between herbs and spices. However, herbs, which are defined botanically as plants that do not develop woody, persistent tissue, usually are called for in their fresh state, whereas spices generally are dried. Salt is sometimes thought of as a spice, but is a mineral. Each spice has a unique aroma and flavor which derive from compounds known as phytochemicals, or secondary compounds, because they're secondary to the plant's basic metabolism. These chemicals evolved in plants to protect them against herbivorous insects and vertebrates, fungi, pathogens, and parasites. Most spices contain dozens of secondary compounds, and these are plants' recipes for survival, legacies of their coevolutionary races against biotic enemies." End quote. So, the two biologists set out to test just how strong some of those phytochemicals are in some commonly used spices for various cuisines. Quoting Literary Hub, They did this by considering the 30 bacteria that most often cause food poisoning, and then combining dozens and dozens of studies that tested whether the presence of a spice, or its active ingredients, slowed the growth of, or outright killed, one of these bacteria. Some spices, like allspice and oregano, and the root vegetables garlic and onion, inhibit the growth of all 30 types. And many, like bay leaf, mint, coriander, and nutmeg, inhibit half to three-quarters of the bacteria. 
Some, like black pepper and the citric fruits lemon and lime, only inhibit a small number of bacteria on their own, but amplify the effect of other spices. Black pepper, by increasing the bioavailability of other spices' active ingredients, thus increasing the rate at which they are absorbed by bacteria. Lemon and lime, by breaking down the bacteria's cell walls, making the bacteria more susceptible to the active ingredients in spices. End quote. Now, from there, the pair cross-indexed the spices used in hundreds of recipes from dozens of cultures with the mean annual temperature in locations of origin for those cultures. And indeed, they found that as the mean annual temperature increased, the proportion of recipes with spices, the quantity of spices in those recipes, number of different spices per recipe, and the use of the strongest antibacterial spices all increased commensurately. Now, that could just be a correlation. There could still be other explanations. Maybe more spices are used in places where those spices are grown. But the researchers say the bustling spice trade spanning millennia underscores the frequent usage of spices far from where they're grown. And many spices aren't grown in warmer climates at all. So that wouldn't add up with the finding that cultures in warmer climates use more spices. Even keeping with the finding that cultures in warmer climates historically incorporated more spices into their cooking, does that necessarily mean they're being used for those antibacterial purposes? UL and Hoffman in Literary Hub question whether the reason is instead that spices can help people keep cool by causing them to sweat, something anyone who's ever had some intense chili peppers or at least watched an episode of Hot Ones can attest to. But not all spices do that. Chili peppers have capsaicin that causes the sweating, but other common spices like cinnamon and oregano do not. And from their findings, it really does seem like the main reason that cultures developed the usage of more and stronger spices over time was as a means of fighting off bacteria, particularly that which could be born of food spoilage in warm climates without refrigeration. The biologists wrote in the 1998 Some Like It Hot article, quote, Countries with hotter climates used spices more frequently than countries with cooler climates. Indeed, in hot countries, nearly every meat-based recipe calls for at least one spice, and most include many spices, especially the potent spices, whereas in cooler countries, substantial fractions of dishes are prepared without spices, or with just a few. End quote. They found that spice-wise, nations such as Thailand, the Philippines, and India were towards the top of the list, and Scandinavian countries rounded out the bottom. The U.S. and China were around the middle but varied regionally within, which makes sense to me, at least in terms of Mexican food being way spicier here in Austin than it is in Queens. Of course, there's lots of super spicy Indian food and such in the Northeast, so again, the U.S. is just kind of a crapshoot. Which also adds up, because outside of indigenous populations, most of these cuisines were brought to the U.S. many, many, many generations after these spice practices were knowingly put into practice. As Yoeli and Hoffman point out, if you were to ask a cook from a particular culture why they add whichever spices they do, they'd tell you that's just how they like it. Or, especially in the case of families passing down recipes, that that's just how they've always done it. Quoting those two in Literary Hub, Why might learning shape beliefs and tastes rather than just shaping the desired behaviors directly? One possibility is it's simply an effective way to get us to act. If you like spicy food, you'll eat spicy food. Another possibility, though, is that internalization ensures the functional behavior is taken even when its function is not understood. 
like over-imitation. If Indians like the taste of black pepper in their curry, they won't be tempted to remove it, even if they don't realize that it's there because it amplifies the effect of cumin, coriander, turmeric, and capsicum. If Europeans had had a chance to develop a taste for nixtamalized corn, they'd have avoided pellagra. The American food supply benefits from abundant refrigeration, as well as industrial food safety practices and regulations that minimize concerns of spoilage. But immigrants from warm locales have figuratively and literally developed a taste for spice, a taste that developed in a culture that needed to protect against foodborne illness, but that persists even though they now live in a culture with no such need. End quote. Ueli and Hoffman call these kinds of phenomena lags, vestigial traits like the human tailbone that once served a purpose but no longer do. Or they could also be considered spillovers, when a belief or taste still has a relevant purpose in one context, but that belief or taste persists even when taken out of that context. This isn't the same as what they meant, but I am choosing to think of this as how I am in Texas right now, where I grew up, and have a huge hankering for hot sauce slathered on everything. Soon, I'll be removed from this context back in New York City, but my taste for spicy foods will persist. You can take the boy out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the boy. And similarly, many populations may no longer need the antimicrobial benefits of certain beloved spices, but those spices have been used in their cuisines for generations, so they're not going to give them up just because science says they're now unnecessary. Food is far too tasty to suffer that fate. If you want to relive the sounds of your youth or of eras before your time, I'd like to introduce you to a website called the Museum of Endangered Technology Sounds, or SaveTheSounds.info. It's a blast from the past in more ways than one, considering it doesn't appear to have been updated in many years. The site, which was started as a joke by advertising students at the Virginia Commonwealth University in 2012, gives you a chance to listen to old sounds, like the AOL Instant Messenger notifications, the Windows 95 startup, and Nokia's classic ringtone. But it goes back further as well. There's a dot matrix printer printing, a rotary phone being dialed, and an old-fashioned movie theater countdown. Other highlights include Space Invaders, a speak and spell, a CD skipping, and Tetris. The trio told Mel Magazine five years ago that they originally got the idea in 2012 when many people had switched over to smartphones, but one of them, Mary Beth Ledesma, still had a Blackberry, and the guys would make fun of her tapping away at the buttons. That springboarded into a conversation about the sounds of technology, which ended up resonating with a lot of other people. And to really sell their digital museum, they invented a kind of character to run the site. Brendan Chilcott, a kind of nerdy-looking dude whose about section on the web website talks about his five-year plan for collecting data, how if people don't understand how important his work is, they never will, how he has eight gerbils, and that his middle name is Charles, after Charles I of England, who was executed in 1649. The group even made him a Twitter account, which mostly shared media hits after the Museum of Endangered Sounds launched. Because it really did resonate with people, especially digital archivists. 
Jason Scott, then an archivist for the Internet Archive, told Mel, quote, There's absolutely nothing but benefit to having recordings of things that will lose their existence over time. Sometimes, decades later, uses become obvious or clear or beneficial. End quote. While some people might see Scott's collection of floppy disks and AOL free trial CDs as junk, he points out that collectors have often been great resources for scientists and historians in future years. Quoting again from Mel, He cites the example of a toxic lake where people noticed fish getting smaller over time by looking at their old photos of fish hauls. There was no way that the first pictures being taken were like, this is going to be really useful in five decades, explains Scott. So sometimes you don't even know that value is going to be extracted. End quote. Since the Museum of Endangered Sounds launched 10 years ago, digital archiving has taken off in even bigger ways. But sound is still a rare one to archive. The New York Public Library just recently got a grant to start digitizing their large collection of wax cylinders, some of which haven't been played in generations. To do so, a whole new machine called the Endpoint Audio Labs Cylinder Playback had to be designed by sound restoration engineer Nicholas Berg. As Abby Smith, a historian who worked for over a decade at the Library of Congress's Digital Archive program, pointed out eerily to Mel, quote, Sound recording was invented in the 1870s. Our entire history before that is mute. End quote. And even with sound recording, so many sounds of our world will be lost to time. That's why more and more scientists are trying to record natural animal sounds, especially in the oceans, and why projects like the Documentation of Endangered Languages exists. Quoting again from Mel, If these collections seem obscure, it's because they are. But one day, they could be the last remnants of entire languages and species, civilizations and cultures, the final clues of how certain people once lived. Similarly, the story of the early internet, from the bleeps of dial-up to the addictive ring of AOL Messenger, can be told in the sounds of extinct technology. A simple sound recording, which can be stored indefinitely, can come loaded with information about how a machine was used or what it meant in the fabric of human interaction. End quote. The Museum of Endangered Sounds may very well play a part in history eventually, but for now, it's a fun little nostalgic distraction, and quite well designed, too. There's a black and white thumbnail for each sound that colorizes and animates when you click it. The sound plays on a loop, so you have to click them again to stop them, or, as the site suggests, quote, If you like industrial music, try turning on all the thumbnails at once. Which reminds me, has anyone been building an archive of industrial music tracks? Alex Winter, a.k.a. Bill S. Preston Esquire from Bill and Ted, has a new documentary premiering at Tribeca in June called The YouTube Effect. It plans to dive deep into the radicalization and misinformation that has proliferated on the platform over the past several years, despite different strategies from the company to tamp down on the problem. In the past, Winter has directed the documentary's Showbiz Kids about the pressures and abuse faced by child actors, as well as Smosh the Movie about the sketch comedy group on YouTube who were among the very first channels to make it big on the platform. Which, to me, says at least as far as documentary filmmakers without extensive personal experience on the platform as a creator goes, I think he's a pretty well-qualified guy with an interesting perspective to be tackling this issue. Quoting Collider, The YouTube Effect examines how the platform has become a lightning rod for online radicalization, surveillance, algorithmic capitalism, the proliferation of misinformation, and, of course, influencers and cat videos. 
The minute-long trailer takes us through how the service went from being an escape for content creators to one of the worst offenders of misinformation in these rising political times. We see when Google bought YouTube, and how that started the platform on the path it is on today, focusing on the dreaded algorithm, views, and likes. The documentary refers to what we're currently in as the misinformation apocalypse. This documentary tackles how the current state of YouTube and Google has changed society for the worse, and how we are running out of time to fix the current trajectory it has put us on, end quote. Now, as someone who has been making videos on YouTube for 15 years, largely built my career off the back of that, and has been a part of a number of internal programs with the company, I am a little hesitant to place all of the blame on just one platform. When I think a lot of the issues we're seeing today are more systemic of broader social media and the way that humans have been manipulated intentionally or not by the interests of all the large corporations involved. That is not to say YouTube and Google are not culpable in some ways, but I don't believe it's just them. You can watch the trailer for the YouTube effect at the link in the show notes, but until it gets a wider release, I also recommend the New York Times podcast series, The Rabbit Hole. I recommended it a lot on this show back when it first came out, and like I said then, I don't quite agree with all of it and think that it misses a few points that people who have worked more closely on various social media platforms, especially YouTube, would get, but it remains one of the better investigations into social media radicalization in recent years. And if you want to keep going on this kind of dark investigation, I'll also once again recommend the documentary Feels Good Man, which is about Matt Fury, the original creator of Pepe the Frog, and the journey that he went on after his character was co-opted by extremists online. And you know, after all of that, maybe cleanse your brain with some videos of puppies, or the cheeseball wonder that is the TV show Our Flag Means Death, or just shut off your computer and go to a park. That's probably the best option for all of us. Well, that's going to be it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.